Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor. And today, or today is a special day for this podcast. Not only do we have a great guest on this episode, we also have a co-host, John Kane. John Kane is a Marine and a good friend. Welcome, John. Thank you, Connor. Good to be on here. Our guest today is Dr. Jared Stout. Dr. Stout is a doctor of systematic theology. He is an associate professor at the St. Augustine Institute. Uh, we are here to discuss fear and Catholicism. And Dr. Stout is perfect because he wrote a, a book called The Beer Option. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Stout. Yeah, it's great to be with you. It's always uh, fun to talk about beer. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. And uh, I believe you're, you, you are... John and I will be uh, uh, joining the beer, uh, you know, the beer fun with our own beers here. Uh, and I assume you will not be joining because it's Lent. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Taking the hard road here. I think we picked a bad, uh, a bad time in the liturgical calendar, maybe. This. Well, you know, th there is that tradition of the, the monks who did the beer fast, although I, I do try to straighten that out in my book. Uh, the Friars Minim, so they were like the most intense uh, fasting group of the Franciscans, founded by St. Francis Paola. Word from our affiliate, Bishop Sheen Rosaries. You've probably worn through the chain of your cheap plastic rosary. Other rosaries simply can't stand up to the wear and tear of everyday life. Bishop Sheen Rosaries are made of solid metal beads and paracord to withstand any condition and are backed with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade your rosary to a Bishop Sheen rosary made to fit your lifestyle or buy one for a friend. Each rosary sold supplies two weeks of food for a school kid in Uganda. You use the exclusive link down below to help support our efforts here at Plotlines. The link will take you to sheenrosaries.com. Be sure to use the code PLOTLINES10. They actually did the Lenten fast the whole year. Um, and the traditional Lenten fast was only eating one meal a day and no animal products uh, during throughout the Middle Ages and before. And so they actually started brewing beer just to help sustain them during the day. But then the tradition grew up that they were only drinking beer during Lent, but that's actually not true. It was just to help them with, with their strong uh, Lenten fasting. Gotcha, that, yeah. I believe it's also common for monks to not eat until sun, sunset, is that? Yeah, that's right. So even in the rule of St. Benedict, it talks about that, but that is the traditional Lenten fast. So all Christians in the early church did that fast. And that's actually where Ramadan comes from. They were just imitating Lent. That's um, yeah. So then over time, uh, that one meal a day kind of got bumped up. And sometimes you believe in putting a little snack called a collation during the day, but um, the monks would not eat until after Vespers. So they, they moved up the three o'clock prayer, which was called known. They moved that up to midday. That's actually where we get the word noon from. It's actually known being moved up to what would now, you know, speak of as noon, 12 o'clock. Then they would pray Vespers and then they would eat. So they, during Lent, they just kind of moved up the evening uh, to be early afternoon. Yeah. I think one of our, or a lot of our listeners are going and watchers are going to sort of want a basic more sort of morality of drinking alcohol slash beer because 
there's a lot of misconceptions and, uh, you know, and then there's a lot of people who take beer way too far. So mm -hmm. how would you uh, set that up for us? Well, sin is essentially a misuse of a good, right? And you can think about that a number of perspectives, but even like our sexuality, right? It's good, right? The, the sexual act, which we traditionally call the marital act, right? It's good. And what we see with sin is when these, this good thing is misdirected and misused. Um, and we can think of that for a lot of other sins, but obviously when it comes to alcohol, um, the Bible says that it's good. And, and there's more wine in the Bible than beer, but you know, even the Psalms say wine to gladden the heart of man. But beer is in the Bible. And you might think, well, wait a second. I, I don't see it there. Uh, but it's actually called strong drink. They didn't have liquor in the Old Testament times. That, that wasn't made until the 1400s. Mm -hmm. So when it says wine and strong drink, for some reason, these, uh, I guess, maybe snooty Bible translators didn't want to translate it <laughs> beer. So they somehow they thought strong drink was better. But the Hebrew word is shakar. And... Even like the Mesopotamian word for beer was sikaru. So sikaru to shakar. The Israelites made beer just by soaking um, twice baked loaves of barley in, in a tub and just letting it sit. They might put honey or fruit in there uh, because those things have yeast. They didn't know what yeast was, but they knew that if you put those things in, that it would actually ferment better. Um, and then they would drink that with straws. So that was very common throughout the ancient Near East in Egypt, right? So that's how they made beer. And shikar was actually part of the daily Israelite offering to God. Uh, wine was as well. So wine and beer were actually poured out uh, before the altar as a libation. So yeah, beer is there in the Old Testament and it is meant to be used well. And actually it's meant to be used to honor God, right? Every good thing in the world is meant to be used to honor God. And it becomes sinful well the thing doesn't become sinful the use of it becomes sinful when we're turning it away from honoring god from promoting health and relationship and what these things that are supposed to happen and turn it towards a more selfish purpose and so you know when we drink too much alcohol i think really it's a kind of escape you know we're escaping from reality or even from morality right because people say well you know just drink and then we can do whatever right eat drink and be merry whatever and um but so it's, it's a laying down of our responsibilities, checking out of reality, and it's pulling away from relationships to God and to other people, right? Because when you get drunk, you know, you're usually not a very nice person to be around. And so we have to use everything that God has given us and the things that we make in culture for the right reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than distorting them. Absolutely. <clears throat> I was just um, curious, for, uh, I wondered, like, what are ways that we can encourage our peers around us, um, especially in, you know, in America where the culture is uh, heavily based around drinking to get drunk? Um, what are ways that we can drink responsibly and encourage those around us to do the same? Well, in the book, you know, I, I have like an appeal to parents, you know, mm -hmm. teach your children how to drink. Right. You know, I say children, right. But, you know, even, you know, I'm not saying they're teeny tiny, but you know, right. you give kids on, on holiday, holy days and, and feast days, you give them a little drink and, and it demystifies it. 
right? Mm -hmm. Drinking has been a regular part of Catholic culture throughout all of our history. And in America, and I think it's because we live in a more Protestant culture, mm -hmm. you know, it's been, it's become like a taboo, right? Even with prohibition, you know, for those years where we were trying to get rid of alcohol altogether to say, it's bad, stay away from it, don't do it. I said, no, 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 rather drink with your kids. And, and say, well, that's illegal. Well, actually in most states, it isn't. There are a few where it is, but so mm -hmm. I, I'm really sorry if you live in one of those states, but <laughs> like Utah is one of them. Oh um, yeah. Uh, but almost every state, it is legal to consume alcohol with your kids in your own house. And there's even some states like Wisconsin and Louisiana, where you can actually drink publicly with your own kids. You know? Right. And like restaurants, so teach your kids how to drink. Um, and then I would say this, these are my general principles for Catholic drinking, feasting, fasting, friendship, mm -hmm. feasting, right? That, that we drink as Chesterton said, you know, not because you know, we're sad, right? We drink because we're happy. That mm -hmm. is, we're drinking for the right reasons. And that's where it comes back to honoring God. Mm -hmm. um, we have these great feast days. Um, and there was even an early church father that commanded his monks to have a drink every Sunday. He said, because you have to celebrate the Lord's day. Um, and I'm so when you read like Joseph Pieper's book, In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity, he says, well, that's how Catholics celebrated the feast days. You go to mass, but then the celebration continues with eating, drinking, singing, dancing, you know, music, uh, all, all of these things that that's actually a big reason why we drink. We're drinking to celebrate, mm -hmm. right? We're not, we're not saying the world is bad. We want to get away from it. Saying the world is good, but then fasting. And of course, here we are in Lent. Now I know you guys are drinking right now, but, you know, <laughs> but fasting is, you know, making sure that we don't get too attached to the good things of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that, you know, we're not drinking to excess. We're not getting too dependent. The church gives us every Friday as a day of penance, right? And actually Friday is a big party night. So maybe it's a good day to say, well, you know, on Fridays, I don't drink, you know, yeah. or Advent and Lent, these, these seasons of penance and say, you know, I'm giving it up, taking a step back. And, and I think that that can be a really good thing. But then friendship. Like I said, if you, if you go to, you know, like one of these stupid parties, go to frat house or whatever, it's not real friendship, right? right. And so I, I think that what I've seen throughout my life is just sitting down with other guys and talking, having real camaraderie with a beer, right? It draws us together. You know, you see these men's groups and, uh, right. you know, I, I, people always, you know, tell me at parishes, well, we can't get guys to come. And I said, well, have beer and you know, smoke pipes and tobacco <laughs> yeah. pipes, right? You know, and um, yeah. you get guys there. Um, mm -hmm. So I, those are my principles, feasting, fasting, friendship, and, you know, don't sin, you know? And well, that's a big question. Some people say, is it a sin to get drunk, right? And the answer is clearly yes. I mean, Paul lists it as one of the sins that can keep you from entering the kingdom of God uh, in his letters. He, he mentions that a couple of times. And the reason why is because we are spiritual beings, right? And the main spiritual acts that we have are our reasoning and our free will. Um, and when we impair those, um, obviously we, we lose control. And we say, well, I was drunk. I didn't know I was doing that. Yeah, but you chose to get drunk. Right. right? And so you chose to impair the, the highest faculties that you have, the most important elements of who you are. 
right? And so it's a sin to do that. It, it, it's harmful to you on both a physical level, spiritual level, and you are capable, culpable for all the things that you did when you were drunk because you chose to get drunk. Right. I think it's according to Aquinas that uh, uh, drinking or getting drunk for the first time is not a sin, at least uh, because I think he says because you want, you don't know what it is to be drunk until you have gotten drunk. And I thought, I mean, the sin, I, I always thought that the sin is not what you do if you get drunk. It's that you got drunk. Is yes, that but, I'm, but I'm saying, yeah, because you chose to do yeah. that, then you're responsible for what happens after. That That's what sure. I mean. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, your reason's impaired, and that's the problem. So, yeah, you're not in, in your right mind always. Now, in that case, it's like if someone accidentally got drunk because mm -hmm. they didn't know how to drink right that's one thing because it wasn't intentional but it's not like oh well the first time here's a free card just go ahead and go at it because it's not a sin the first time no that's not what aquinas is saying you know definitely no yeah. um but yeah so if, if you don't if you don't understand your limit and you accidentally you know you make a mistake and okay but um aquinas says that it's okay to drink to hilarity that is not like you're falling off your seat but it's, he said it's okay to drink until you feel good right, right? but but not to the point of, of losing control of reason. Yeah, I think uh, you brought it up that we live in a country built by Protestants. What would you say that, or how would you sort of say that, like, what do puritanical Protestants get wrong about alcohol? Mm -hmm. You know, there, there always is a temptation to say, you know, well, people are abusing this thing. So let's get rid of that thing. Um, and, and there's a quote attributed to Luther, which I, I don't think this is exactly appropriate. So don't attribute this to me. I'm just going to quote him, right? You know, <laughs> women can lead us into sin, but we don't get rid of women. Right? And, he, and he was directly, you know, speaking about alcohol, right? And making a comparison there, you mm -hmm. know, and course he he had his famous table talks with beer right he'd gather his students together and, and they would talk over the table and he was a real german right so so he uh liked his beer and his wife actually brewed beer um i'm not a fan of luther by the way and you can see that <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway um he gives a different perspective but yeah aquinas says that you know right following aristotle virtue is in the middle right so mm -hmm. if you drink to excess he says that well, obviously that's a sin, but can can there be a defect? And he says, well, yes, if drinking, you saw drinking to be good for you and your health and you specifically didn't do it. Um, now, now we know that, right, it's, it's not that we actually have to drink or something, but he was sort of putting that out there as a hypothetical. And I think that that does kind of represent the, the defect of just saying, you can't drink, right? That would be the defect to say, no, 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 it's not permissible because it could be used in excess. But I mean, literally, if you drink too much water, it will kill you, right? You know, so uh, what we have to do is build up virtue. And so we have the virtue of temperance, uh, which is moderation, right? So it helps us to, to be in the middle when it comes to bodily desires. Uh, and that's, you know, how we're able to, to use alcohol well. 
But you know what actually what ends up happening when you have that puritanical kind of view that just wants to get rid of anything that could be an occasion for sin, what does it do? It leads actually to the overreaction. And so, you know, if you look at like a Catholic custom of the beer garden, what that was is families going to mass and then going home and getting like a picnic basket and then going and sitting in a beer garden outside the brewery and drinking beer. Everyone, right? You know, even the kids in moderation. (laughs) And and you said, okay, when I see that, like families gathering together to drink on the Lord's day, that's probably how you're supposed to do it, right? Not, Not going to some party where everyone's drinking excess or not being puritanical and, you know, some Protestants on, on the Lord's day would say, you have to just sit in your house and do nothing. Right. Say, no, no, we get families outside and, and celebrating and really enjoying this day together in a way that honors God. Now, however, if you have recognized that alcohol is an occasion of sin, that it really is a problem in your life, well then, yeah, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, and you really should, uh, avoid alcohol if it is a moral or physical problem for you. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is that you are a Benedictine oblate. Is that correct? Yes. What does it mean to be a Benedictine oblate? So the Benedictines are not actually in an order the same way that, say, the Franciscans or Dominicans are. Um, most monasteries are actually independent you know, freestanding. And there might be a confederation of monasteries, but the abbot is even like the bishop for his community. So they're, they're independent. So if, if you become like a secular Franciscan or Dominican, you're joining a third order that is really worldwide. Um, but if you want to become a Benedictine as a layman, like myself, you join one particular monastery, right? You're not joining some worldwide group, just one monastery. Um, and the word oblate just means like an offering. So you make it like an offering of yourself to God by joining yourself to that community. So I'm an oblate at Our Lady of Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma. And so I unite my prayer and my work to the prayer and the work of the monks. So it's really a spiritual reality. There are practices that I do. I, I read from the rule of St. Benedict every day with a commentary for oblates. Um, I pray the divine office, right? The liturgy, the hours, parts of it, at least, because uh, I have six kids, right? So that, that keeps me busy and mm-hmm. two jobs. Um, and then, you know, practice Lexio Divino, a spiritual reading. And uh, But the, why I was drawn to the Benedictines is it's the same reason I wrote this book, is that I believe very strongly that we need to live out our faith through culture, through a whole way of life saturated with our faith. And so the monks, for me, are a model of Catholic culture. Because it's not like they pray all the time. They, they do pray a lot. But, you know, even at Clear Creek, the abbot said, you know, we sleep eight hours, we pray eight hours, we work eight hours. And so they have the, a great balance. But they do a lot of things there, right? So, I mean, Clear Creek has cattle, they, they grow some of their own food, right? They make cheese, they have workshops. And, um, and I'm really drawn to that. And beer was actually part of it. Right. I've always enjoyed monastic beer. And, you know, as I, you know, discovered a lot of the monastery beers, like by the Trappists, who are actually a group of Benedictines, right? They're a particular, yeah, the Cistercians, who are Reformed Benedictines, and then Trappists, who are Restored Cistercians, but they're all part of the Benedictine family. So when I was experiencing these beers, like Chimay and others, I just started learning the history. 
And lo and behold, it turns out the reason we're not drinking beer out of straws, you know, like the ancient Israelites, um, is because the monks perfected brewing as we know it, right? So rather than just creating that kind of mush in a tub, right, you know, we, we um, soak malted barley to create what we call wort, and then we boil it um, and, and put in hops to, to flavor it. It was the monks who really fine-tuned a lot of the brewing equipment and the process, and they were the first ones to put hops into beer um, in northern France. And so it was really amazing getting into that history and to say, all right, so the monks are not only teaching us about how to live Catholic culture, but they're also showing us how to integrate things like beer within that culture. And so, you know, why did I write a book about beer? It could be a book about anything, right? How do we integrate the good things of life and culture into a Christian way of life, right? That's what I'm really after. And so it's like, if we can do it with beer, we can do it with anything, right? You know, let's get this right. And then we can get everything else right too. Yeah. Did you say the Arlie Clear Creek, do they, they make beer? They do make beer. Um, they don't sell beer, mm. uh, but one of the monks brews and, and they have it um, one or two days a week, I think, depending on the time of year. So just with like their lunch. Is it good beer? Yeah, so it's um, the one time I had it there, it was like a monastery double style. So like a, in a Belgian style, like you'd see in a lot of other monastery beers. Is that similar to a uh, Blue Moon? Because that's a Belgian or is that different? That is different. So um, for like a monastery double, I would recommend well, you're going to like birranursia.com, B-I-R-R-A-N-U-R-S-I-A.com, Birranursia. There's American monks in St. Benedict's hometown of Norcia, Italy. It was called Nursia when St. Benedict was born there. And they have a brewery. So you can actually, even though it's made in Italy, you can buy it over here and it's very good. So their dark beer is like in the double style. Um, and that'd probably be the one I'd recommend trying. But if you go to a decent liquor store, you can uh, generally find, well, the most common Trappist beer I've already mentioned is Chimay. That's C-H-I-M-A-Y. And um, their red is a double, but their blue is a Belgian strong ale, uh, which is one of my favorites. So uh, those would be uh, some good beers to try for that style. So they're darker, uh, maltier, higher alcohol, um, than, than that beer you're drinking there. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, water, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are beers that are more like water than Blue Moon, but on the spectrum, you know, right. you, you need to try some of these strong monastic beers. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first beer I ever had, my dad, he, he let us drink when we were 18, but, you know, he put, he put some ground rules, like only under my roof and you're not going out or afterwards or anything. And I remember the first beer I had was a, a milk stout um, pretty dark, malty beer. Um, it was a hard pour. That's why I loved it. Just watching the beer cascade down. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of loathe not living in Europe or close to these countries where they brew these really dark, malty, like sometimes sweet beers. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, in America, we don't have, we don't, those aren't the beers that people drink. Um, yeah, my first beer uh, was in Poland. I was an exchange student in high school. Um, and I was actually in the, the, in the medieval town hall of Wrocław, Poland, and they had a brewery and restaurant down in the basement level of this beautiful building. 
And so we had a really nice meal and, and it was the, the kind of beer that you were just describing, mm-hmm. you know? And so here I was, you know, teenager, but this is how I got started. Right. Not just like so many people just pounding Bud Light or whatever, but <laughs> it really was this amazing cultural experience. Right. And I was hooked on good beer. Right. right. I wasn't interested in, you know, any keggers or anything like that. Yeah. Like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. once, I mean, once you taste the best of the best, it's it's hard to just yeah. start drinking water at that point. Yeah, exactly. Well, that stuff's not beer. <laughs> yeah. Um, Our Lady of Clear Creek Abbey. Uh, my, uh, will you speak to sort of how that got started? My, I've heard of it before, and a few of my friends visited Clear Creek mm-hmm. before. I find that it has a very interesting origin. Yeah, to say the least. So there was a really impactful professor at the University of Kansas. So this is a state school. And he, along with two other professors, um, started an integrated humanities program where you could fulfill, initially at least, your, some of your core requirements in your first two years. So it was John Sr. Um, and if you haven't heard of him, I really recommend his book, The Restoration of Christian Culture. Um, and this program, the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, a lot of times just shortened IHP, Integrated Humanities Program, uh, led to over 200 conversions in 10 years um, of students to the Catholic faith. What did they do? Well, I mean, they read the great books together. Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than philosophical type books, they read a lot of narrative books, so Mm -hmm. literature, a memorized poetry. And the professors would just come, the three of them, just sit up in the front and talk about them. And the students mm-hmm. were just kind of like entering into their conversation. Um, and so they memorized poetry, they sang folk songs, they learned conversational Latin, they went stargazing, they had country fairs, they had waltzes with live music. Um, they would spend sometimes, well, either a summer trip or a whole semester in Europe. And it was just transformational. And, the, and it was a state school. So the teachers were not just like, you know, saying, hey, you all need to be Catholic. They, they just started thinking about the great things of life. Mm-hmm. And then they would come to the professors and say, well, what about God? You know, And they would just say, well, what do you want to talk about? And they would just answer their questions. And so the students themselves just were, were being led to God. And then they, they started leading each other. And it was a mm-hmm. really beautiful process. Um, Archbishop Coakley in Oklahoma City went through IHP, Bishop Conley in Lincoln. Uh, but so did uh, about eight of the monks at Clear Creek. Uh, Dr. Senior actually took them to a monastery in France called Fongambo, and Bishop Conley even entered there for a time, or at least thought about it, spent some time there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the abbot uh, at Fongambo said, we're being invaded by Americans because so many <laughs> IHP students. Um, and so Eight of them, you know, kind of persisted, right? There was actually dozens there at one at a time, but um, eight of them persisted and became monks in France. This actually led to lawsuits against the University of Kansas because some of these students had been Protestant or even Jewish. And so their, their parents were freaking out. I sent my kids to the University of Kansas and now they're a monk in France, you know? <laughs> I mean, they literally sued, you know, wow. the University of Kansas. So in the year 2000, Fongambo and France said, all right, we're going to send you Americans back home. And so the monastery uh, founded Clear Creek. Um, the, it was the, in the Diocese of Tulsa, which very graciously worked with the monastery. 
Um, and it's still, you know, within the kind of home region of a lot of the monks, right? Because they were going to the University of Kansas. And so it's really become a beautiful place um, of culture um, in, in the fullest sense that prayer is the height of culture that organizes our life. And as I mentioned, they, they have a lot of great agricultural um, practices there. And so a lot of people have been impacted just by visiting. You said that they went to... Uh... Or, or you said they went to France and got trained there, or at least, and then were sent back. Are they still like, um, you said also that Benedictines don't really necessarily have as much of a structure between, between different abbeys. Is there still a uh, structure there or are they completely separate? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, Benedictine monasteries are grouped into like federations uh, or we call congregations. So. Bogambo is part of the Salem congregation. Um, so you may know the Abbey of Salem because it's famous for Gregorian chant. So Salem sent monks um, to Fogambo. So what happens is that when a monastery reaches a certain size, it will then split and it'll make a foundation of another monastery. So Benedictines do actually take a vow of stability to stay in the monastery for life. And there are exceptional moments like that when a monastery will found another monastery and then under obedience, the monks will actually have to leave. Um, and so Fogambo, you know, has actually founded, I think about at least five uh, male monasteries. Um, so three or four in France and then, and then Clear Creek because they've grown so much because mm -hmm. uh, they're following the traditional Benedictine way of life, what we call the orarium. And so they're being faithful to the rule and the traditional Benedictine office as set out in the rule of, of praying all the Psalms and they have traditional liturgy and chant. So it's been very attractive. Um, and so uh, it was founded in the year 2000, as I mentioned, as a priory. And so that means that the prior, who is Dom Philip Anderson, was underneath the abbot of Fogambo. But once Clear Creek grew to a self-sustaining level, it then became its own independent self-governing abbey, which is what it is now. So it's no longer a priory. It became an abbey with its own abbot. And they have grown from the 12 monks who showed up in the year 2000 to over 50 monks now. So just in a little over 20 years. So pretty remarkable growth. And they're actually building a whole nother wing of the monastery right now. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so getting back to more about beer, uh, do you have any uh, strategies for drinking smartly, you know, outside of like just avoiding getting drunk, but you know, like uh, just going about drinking? Yeah, so, you know, some people have suggested not drinking alone. And, and I think that, yes, that does make <laughs> sense because then we're more tempted to just kind of use it as this escape to kind of check out, et cetera. So, um, so I would say, you know, don't drink alone and avoid drinking parties. Um, and rather I, I would say, you know, drink with a group of friends, um, and, and know your limit, you know, so I'm, I'm a short guy. I don't weigh very much. So for me, it's usually two beers, I'm done maybe a third, but if it's over a longer period of time and I'm eating right. food and whatever, you know, three beers, fine. I, there are guys that weigh twice what I do. And so they can drink a lot, a lot more than me. Um, so yeah, know your limit and be firm about that. Cause you know, what happens is you start drinking and then you just keep drinking, right? right. Because 
you know, your resolve is kind of worn down. So I, I would say no already. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be firm with that. And, you know, maybe you have a buddy there and you can say, hey, you know, make sure I don't have more than three beers. Okay. Can you, can you, can you help keep me honest here? And maybe he wants you to do the same for him. And um, yeah, so, you know, you have to know what maybe your near occasions are. Okay. If I'm going to this person's house, I know that this guy likes to drink too much and maybe I'm going to be pulled into that. So I'm not going to go, you know? Um, so, and, or if I drink by myself, I might, you know, just keep drinking or whatever. So I'm not going to do that. So it's good to know yourself, have a spiritual director. That's a good thing in general. Right. And if you don't have a spiritual director, you can even just ask a priest for kind of counsel and confession. Um, and just to say, you know, I mean, not, even if you're not necessarily falling into sin, but you know, I'm really trying to grow in this area. Uh, does this make sense? Like, like what I'm thinking of doing to try to avoid sin. Um, in this area. So I, I would come back feasting, fasting, friendship. I, I do recommend that um, people, you know, have periodic breaks. And I, I do think that either Advent and or Lent are, are a good time for a break, but um, it, it's good. And not, not just with alcohol, but with other things too, technology, you know, or if we're eating too much or whatever it is to say, I'm going to take a period of prayer and fasting. And once again, the church is kind of laying it out for us right now. Um, Lent is meant to be a 40-day fast. Like I said, it used to be one meal a day. Um, but, you know, I think that means that we should change the way that we eat during Lent. doesn't mean that, you know, we're giving up food altogether. But, you know, maybe you don't eat meat throughout the whole 40 days like they used to. It used to be no animal products, as I mentioned. Or I'm going to skip breakfast, you know. Or I'm going to, I know we tend to give up just, I'm going to give up chocolate. But you know, it could be I'm giving out something more substantial, you know, or alcohol or whatever it is. So I, I think that that is really important to have these more intense times of prayer and fasting when we pull back from other things and especially technology. I'll put that out there again. I, I think that technology is designed to addict us. And, you know, if you're addicted to technology use, which most of us are, and, and you're struggling with drinking, that's a bad combination too, right, in terms of uh, avoiding the near occasions of sin. So it's, it's very important to be guarded, to, to know yourself, and to have a spiritual guide, whether it's spiritual director, but it could also just be a good friend. We're going to check in, make sure that our habits are in line with the use of technology and with drinking and with prayer, and that my life is ordered, and, and I have that kind of spiritual accountability partner. I love that you talk about accountability, because I think in general, with any sort of addiction or problem, especially like habitual sins in your life, that that accountability factor really helps along the way. And I think, I mean, these things like technology and alcohol are designed to um, make us feel lonely and, you know, separate us from others. So I love that you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard of Exodus 90, but oh, absolutely. It, it is that, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. So that 90 day period of give up alcohol, um, and of course the cold showers is what everybody always talks about, but you know, and so you're pulling back on technology and social media, but maybe the most important part of it is the time of prayer mm -hmm. and then the fellowship with other men, Yeah, because that's what makes it work, right? right? If you just gave up stuff that, that, that doesn't lead you into the heart of it, right? It's, it right. really is that you're growing through prayer. You're growing in friendship with other men. And, you, and then you are practicing that asceticism, right? That discipline. Mm -hmm. which is so important. And, and I found this in, an, in a number of different ways that sacrifice opens up grace, right? So sacrificing things that we're attached to 
opens up just whole new paths of prayer and grace in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, are you familiar with the story of, I think, Doppelbach beer? Yes. Okay. And it's related to what I said about the monastic fast. So uh, the original Doppelbach um, is from that Pauliner, Pauliner brewery in Munich. And so the Paul and the Pauliner stands for St. Francis Paola, who founded the Friars Minim. And, and when you get a Pauliner, like the Salvatore, that's the original Doublebach, right? And you look at the, the cap or on the label of a Pauliner, there is St. Francis Paola, mm-hmm. right? So even though it, it was secularized under Napoleon, so a couple hundred years ago, it became a secular brewery, no longer run by the Franciscans. But so that's that beer, like which I mentioned that the Friars Minim developed to sustain them in their fasting. So that's the origin of the double buck. There's a great story that the Pope heard that the monks were using beer to supplement them in their fasting. And he said, well, you, they need to send some of that to me. And so the story is, you know, there it is. It's just being, you know, being hauled probably by, you know, donkey or whatever. And so it's being shaken up and, and it's just sitting in the sun as it's, you know, the, the barrels are going over the Alps. And by the time it gets to Rome, it's spoiled. And so the Pope sips some of it. And he says, oh my gosh, if the monks want to use that for fasting, <laughs> let them go ahead, you know. <laughs> they got away with a fast one there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, what is your favorite Doppelbach? Well, I, I would say definitely the Salvatore, which I mentioned, which means the savior. Mm-hmm. And so with a history like that, you know, you really can't go wrong. I, I wish the Franciscan friars were still making it, the friars minimum. But um, nonetheless, I really, it's the original and it, and it has that amazing history. So it would be the, even the, probably the beer they were sending over the mountains in that story. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, how can you go wrong? So yeah, try, try uh, Polliner Salvatore. Yeah, I, uh, I'd love to at some point. <laughs> um, so do you brew beer? I have, yes. Yeah, so, okay. And it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I've done it in the house and the kids got involved and, and everything. I actually lost my brewing equipment in a, a bad mold experience that we had in a oh, rental. Right. So I, I don't have it anymore. But nonetheless, I've been, I brew uh, with some of my friends and I've actually even been a part of a parish brewing experience. And so, yes, you know, I have brewed a number of times and, and it really is a lot of fun. Do you pray for the success of your beer? Well, you know, we have to bless everything, right? You know, now in the book, I mentioned that there were, there was a deacon who actually wanted to brew beer with holy water and say, okay, no, that's taking mm-hmm. things too far, right? Because we don't use holy things for mundane purposes, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, we can sprinkle uh, holy water on the beer. There's nothing wrong with that to bless it, right? That's what we use holy water for, for blessing. And actually, that is where the book came from, um, is I was asked to give a talk about beer. I don't even know how that happened. But anyway, I, you know, <laughs> I, okay. I, I gave a Theology on Tap talk about beer. That's perfect. And I took the official uh, blessing for beer from the Roman ritual, and I used that as the basis of my talk. And so I said, this is like the catechesis of beer is this Roman ritual book. Um, and so, yes, we pray for our beer. We, there's even an official blessing from the church. And that says something, 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, that Certainly. the church actually includes that um, in its own ritual. So I, I have it even just uh, right in the introduction to the book because I still kind of use that to open everything up. Yeah. And so this is it, just if you haven't heard it. Bless, O Lord, this creature beer, which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race, and grant through the invocation of thy holy name that whosoever shall drink it may gain health and body and peace and soul through Christ our Lord. Amen. Yeah. And so, you know, the church is definitely recognizing there that beer can promote our physical and spiritual good. It's not to say that it can't do the opposite. We all know that it can, but that's part of the blessing. May this be something that really conduces to your physical and spiritual good for the honor of God. And and I think it's interesting that the blessing says that God has produced this, right? Even though, of course, we're the ones brewing it, but it's still recognizing beer as a blessing that comes from God. Yeah. I mean, you would say brewing beer makes you uh, or draws you closer to God. Well, you know, I, I have a whole chapter on home brewing. And what I say in the book is that God gave us a cultural mission. When you think of Genesis 1, you know, he made us in his image and likeness, but it says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over creation. And we see at the beginning of Genesis 2 that Adam is, is tilling uh, within the garden. So God wants us to take up the good things of creation and to enhance them through our work. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that brewing automatically brings you closer to God. Sure. But I, I would say it's like the same principles, right? That you're brewing something that you want to contribute to kind of the building up of culture within your family and with your friends. You want to use it for festivity, right? Mm-hmm. To honor God, you're going to, you're going to bless it, you know, maybe have a priest come and, and, and bless it. And you're exercising that dominion over creation, right? You, you literally can see that malted barley in your hand, right? There's the hops. I'm making it, you know, I'm, I'm producing something. I'm not just going to the store. And there is something spiritual about that. So I'm not going to say that either making beer or drinking beer automatically will do that, but if we do whatever we do rightly, it should bring us closer to God, whether it's brewing or making dinner for your family or your work, your leisure and recreation, right? All of that should bring you closer to God when it's rightly ordered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Order and disorder are the primary, you know, distinctions between good and evil. Um, yeah, absolutely. Do you have any uh, sort of ideas for how, uh, Catholics can begin to take over the uh, beer industry? <laughs> well, I, I know a number of Catholic guys who brew. Um, it is a difficult market to get into. You know, um, before Prohibition, there were 4,000 breweries in the United States. Um, and then, you know, I would say, you know, a couple hundred maybe opened up after Prohibition. But by 19... 19- 79, there were only 40 breweries left in the whole country. 40. I mean, there's probably more than 40 in Denver right now. So we're <laughs> back up to 4,000 breweries again, or maybe even more, because it's been a few years since I checked. So, you know, probably over 4,000 breweries. So it, it is hard for Catholics to, to get into that. But this is what I would recommend. I, I even know some guys 
who just started brewing for Knights of Columbus events at their parish. And then eventually that did grow into a whole nother brewery. Um, and so I think that something like that would be great. Just, just brewing for the Catholic community, mm -hmm. maybe brewing for parish events for different parishes or having like a young adult event or an Oktoberfest. I, I did a really great, um, a couple actually, I've done two beer and food pairings. Um, and uh, just a, no, a number of evangelization events around beer. I've done a beer retreat, right? <laughs> Where it was, it was more than just drinking, I promise. But, uh, uh, but sure? you know, obviously I had time for prayer and he had talks and, you know, I, I drew from the book and everything. But all I'm saying is there's a lot that we can do with beer. And I know there's even some um, Catholics who are even trying to create even kind of economic spaces where we might have a pregnancy center and a restaurant and like shared office space for Catholic groups. And so, I, you know, I think there are a lot of possibilities if we're creative. And, and I'm actually uh, working with a group in Denver that we want to acquire some land outside of Denver and maybe have a residential community <laughs> an apostolate and maybe some businesses kind of all working together. And so, Hey, stay tuned. Maybe there can be a sequel to the beer option, but, um, but I think just opening up a brewery, um, it, it is hard. It's an uphill battle unless you're in an area that's not saturated, I guess it's definitely saturated where I am. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, so what is the spiritual focus of, of, of a beer retreat? Yeah. So we, it, I mean, not surprisingly, it was geared for men, you know, mm -hmm. and so I, I like to say, you know, raise a glass together and then it's time to put down your beer, right, and, and engage in battle. And so, you know, when I, when I give a kind of spiritual talk or groups of talks on beer, you know, it really is how men can kind of gather together to build community and culture but then there comes a time, right? We got to put down our beer, roll up our sleeves. And, and I really think that, I mean, of course, men are more drawn to beer than women. There are many women who like beer, right? But nonetheless, you do a beer event, you're going you're gonna to have probably more men who come. And so, you know, the, the beer option is about more than beer, right? It's about understanding, as we were saying, ordering your life rightly, building community, doing things with your hands, like making beer, um, really having our work honor God, building you know, kind of even local uh, community, like I was saying, economically. And so just introducing some of these ideas to men, but then also talking about what men need to do in our culture beyond beer, right? That, that we need to fight for what is right. We need to protect people who need to be protected, the, you know, the vulnerable who are, and people who are being exploited. And men are not doing their job in our culture right now. And I think a lot of men feel like they can't, right? We're kind of you know, kind of coward a bit. And there's a lot of threats and, and masculinity is now considered toxic. And yeah, of course, there can be a bad expression of masculinity, but it seems like when people talk about toxic masculinity, they're just talking about masculinity, right? And so we need to help Catholic men just to recover what it means to be a Catholic man and really to embrace even the call to family life because a lot of Catholic, young Catholics aren't getting married and so just to put it out there that the, you know, and I got pushed back on this, but so I'll explain why. But I said, you know, most important thing you can do as a young man right now is to get married and raise a family 
and to really raise your kids well, keep them from the crap in the culture, you know, help them to form yeah. virtue and to, and to be ready to go out and build culture in the world. Now, somebody said, well, uh, the most important thing, well, what about, you know, the vocation of the priesthood? And said, well, yeah, okay. With that caveat, right, that some of us are called, you know, to um, this spiritual mission in the church, but I would say all men have this a priestly mission, whether it's going to be in the ordained priesthood or is it to the priesthood of the home, right? Because if the home's a domestic church, we really need men to embrace the spiritual authority that God has given them as father in the home. Um, and there's a book, you know, this is kind of deviating from the beer option, but it's called The Collapse of Parenting. And, it, and the book is by Leonard Sachs, he says, parents think they're doing a good job when they let their kids do whatever they want. But that actually makes their kids to become unhappy. And that the number one thing that kids need to be happy is discipline. Well, who, who you know, is the one who needs to give discipline to the kids, teach them to pray? We know that fathers, and this has been studied extensively sociologically, have much more influence on the spiritual life of their kids than mothers. You know, and so, hey, I mean, don't don't be angry at me if there's any women out there listening to this, because that, like I said, even on a secular level, that's been studied and it just is the reality. Mm -hmm. And so men need to take up their tasks of, of leadership um, in the church, in the home and, and in our society. Yeah, you can't be angry uh, that God created a system the way he's created it. Yeah, and. And there's a beautiful complementarity. I mean, Paul says, be subject to one another out of love of Christ, right? And, th and that's this complementarity, this partnership that the, you know, of being a helpmate to one another. But then he says, wives, be subordinate to your husbands. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's an equality in the relationship, but the husband still has a spiritual role, this kind of priestly authoritative role in the family. He's a spiritual authority. And I think a lot of men maybe are uncomfortable with that, or they've been made to feel uncomfortable. And we have to take that back up because, you know, our families are suffering so greatly and the yeah. church is suffering because our families are suffering. Right. Even I would say that's shown very much in sort of the, the hierarchy as well within the clergy too, is if, you know, it, it almost seems to scare priests to take on their ordered role as being like priests offering up, you know, the sacrifice of the mass for the congregation. Instead, they, you know, want to invite their congregation into like almost like, like, uh, part, like, I mean, uh, participating is not a good word for it, but sort of like co-sacrificing in the sense of like they're on the alt they're you know they're on the altar they're you know uh sort of uh as if there's not a difference in the order of clergy versus laity well look at this what's been in the news recently this incident of baptism but the right. priest didn't want to say i baptize you so instead he said we baptize you and oh it's invalid because the i it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And so you hear priests say, you know, may the Lord bless us. No, you've been given the spiritual authority. Or you are in persona Christi. I, you know, I baptize you. And may Almighty God bless you, which he says with authority, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, give me a break. <laughs>
there's a tradition that I would like to see brought back is, you know, I've noticed uh, at some of some traditional Latin masses where pre where the uh, congregation will bow to the priest as he enters, you know, and then as he exits. Mm-hmm. And I think it really shows sort of, I recognize you, that you are in persona Christi uh, and you are about to do something for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people are afraid of, you know, a kind of clericalism creeping back in the church. And, you know, we don't have to, to have that, right? You know, we don't have to have this improper clericalism in which everything is about the priest and the priest is on some exalted level and can never do anything wrong. And he's the only one who ever makes decisions for the parish, you know, I mean, lay people do need to step up and and help with especially practical things in the parish and uh, the priest cannot do everything himself. But when we look at the role of offering the sacrifice and leading the sacramental life, it is right to honor Christ, you know, um, through the priest. As you said, Aquinas uh, says that virtue is in the middle. You know, you can't have that. uh, I think some people have called it more like clerical fascism or something like that to differentiate between sort of, my understanding is there's a good term or a good definition of clericalism, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And then uh, sort of, uh, so, uh, be, you know, so middle ground between the laity is doing everything, and then on the other side, the priest has, you know, this well, authority, fasc- right? Fascistic, uh, like yeah. this sort of what is it? Fascistic, fascistic way of handling. Well, clerical fascism, just so you know, yeah. does refer to an historical incident of priests leading fascist regimes <laughs> in between the world wars. So anyway, we can use it in other ways, but it, but it does have that uh, historical connotation. Okay. But yeah, I mean, we recognize the authority of the priest. We honor his sacramental role, but we need to do things to serve the church, right? And, um, and we're not just going to, we can't as lay people just wash our hands and say, well, the priest will do it, or he's the one in charge. And, you know, that's part of the reason that things are so bad in the church too, is because we were not holding clergy accountable. Yeah. Well, also, when you don't uh, help out the priest, men will not be there to become priests. Yeah. It's like when you lose male altar servers, uh, you basically lose vocations. Yeah, I think it's true. Um, but yeah, uh, do you have anything uh, you want to say sort of generally about how beer uh should be used, you know, how we uh, should go about our lives uh, with, you know, uh, moderation regarding beer? Well, you know, I I think what I I would say, since we've hit on moderation a lot, Mm -hmm. is, you know, how I really got into the whole Catholic history of beer. And I think that's one of the things I really try to show in the book, that beer is a Catholic drink. Mm-hmm. And, and we want to recover that. But one of the ways that we recover that is I think it'd be a lot of fun just to, to get guys together. And I've certainly done this and just start trying some of these beers with a Catholic history. And so I actually give a list of 30 Catholic beers to try in my book. And so I would say, you know, crack open the book, 
You can also find a definitive list of monastic beers on my website, buildingcatholicculture.com. So you can definitely check that out. But, you know, just get guys together and, and try some of these great beers. Maybe um, do the beer blessing that I mentioned or read a little bit from the rule of St. Benedict or some other spiritual work and then try the beers and, and, and have a conversation. Hey, what did you think about that? How did it compare to this one? Or look up what foods pair with that beer. So especially cheeses and mm -hmm. some of the breweries like Chimay actually makes cheese. There's some monasteries in the U.S. that make cheese as well. Um, so you can uh, look that up like Gethsemane um, that makes cheese, but there, there's a, a couple of others also. So I would say, you know, create kind of like cultural experiences around beer. You can turn them into even spiritual moments, right? If you're having a good conversation about the spiritual life over a beer. And so that's what I would say when it comes to how can we drink rightly Let's use beer to gather us together with other Catholics to have the, like this great experience. Because when, when I've had moments like that, like good people getting together and really experiencing a good Catholic beer with the food, with conversation, that's a powerful moment. Mm -hmm. I actually led a beer pilgrimage and we went to some of the brewing monasteries in Europe. And there were definitely moments like that. Now that's happened at some events and, and gatherings in my house in the US. You don't have to go to Belgium to have that experience. But nonetheless, it just stands out of my mind. I'm, I'm just thinking of us kind of gathering in the hall at the monastery, drinking the monastery's own beer and cheese, which they made right there. Um, and we're on a pilgrimage, right? And so, you know, you have all the hardships of the pilgrimage, but life is like a pilgrimage, right? And then everything just kind of stops. That's what I remember about those moments, right? Just everything stops. And is it the same experience you have in church, right? You know, no, but, but it's a different way, I think, of ordering your life to God. And, and you, have the, you have an experience there of the Catholic faith that is different than being in church. And our faith should not be just about going to church. There should be all of these other ways mm -hmm. to really live out our Catholic faith and, and to encounter God through culture, I think as well, it's more indirect. And so I don't want to be accused of heresy here, right? Mm. You know, but, but it's true that there just are these powerful moments that are really, I think, wholesome. And in the sense that just that there's an earthiness of the beer and the food, but because it's in a spiritual context, it's elevated. And I just get this sense. I'm like, this is a good moment, right? This is good, right? Lord, it is good for us to be here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I would say is, is to really begin looking at alcohol differently. You know, drop all, you know, the kind of baggage related to it and build better experiences. And I know that it's possible because people have said that to me. I've never thought about alcohol this way, or I've never had this kind of really good experience with alcohol like we just did. I always thought, alcohol was bad or, or it just brought me back to bad memories of the past, but people have said, but now I see it differently. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. It's not the end all be all. So that's what I say the, you know, the beer option is just one little aspect of the renewal of culture, but we need that to happen, you know, a thousand times over. And this is one way kind of bringing about this renewal. Yeah. It reminds me sort of, of the Latin phrase, lux orande, lux credende the way we praise, the way we live. I found and it. then Lex Vivendi. Which one? So, what does that mean? 
Yeah. So Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. So the, the law of prayer is the law of belief. Mm-hmm. And then the Lex Vivendi is the law of life. Life. So there's a connection between how we pray, what we believe and how we live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we've sort of like when Catholic culture really collapsed, you know, sort of, I would say in the sixties, probably, uh, you know, we sort of wanted to wrap every bit of culture sort of into the mass, you know, and I think that's why a lot of novelty, ma- different masses sort of happen, you know, like, uh, you have like, to have somewhere to fit the clowns. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Well, yeah, it's like <laughs> clowns, guitar, masses, you know, whatever. Um, but versus, versus having a place where you can have culture that is not specifically meant for mass, where you can also make it Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, Absolutely. that point is really good. And I think that's how we're going to draw young adults, you know, even closer to the faith. You might say, oh, come with me to church. Eh, no, thanks. But hey, come to my house. We're going to drink some monastic beer. All right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a def- So that would be the new evangelization. Absolutely. <laughs> and the book, I call it Brew Evangelization. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a pretty epic title, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think we're coming to the end for this episode. Uh, uh, John, do you have anything to say? No. Uh, it was lovely to meet you, Dr. Stout, and appreciate all you've said and probably going to take a few from your playbook. All right. Well, thank you. It was really great talking with you guys, too. Anything else you want to add before we uh, close up? Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> prosit. Or, yeah, as we say in Latin, prosit. Prominus et singulis. Well, thank you everyone for watching. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I will put down links to uh, different, uh, different elements of the episode today. And especially, you know, Dr. Stout's book. Uh, and who knows, we might have to have another, an, a sequel episode if uh, the doctor is uh, willing. Um, that would be great. But yeah, have a great rest of your day. Thank you.